Let's go back to a Go Loud original. For relaxing times, make it Suntory time. Cut, 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 cut! Is that everything? I mean, it seemed like he said more than that. What are you doing? My husband's a photographer, so he's here working. He wasn't doing anything, so I came along. What do you do? I'm not sure yet, actually. Hello and welcome to Let's Go Back to Lost in Translation. My name is Owen Sheehan and every week myself and Sue Murphy go back and watch a film or television show that has a particular meaning for that week's special guest. This week we are delighted to be joined by Joe Malloy, face of the Six Nations on Virgin Media and voice of Off the Ball. Joe, what is the crack? The crack is mighty. Hello to you too. Hello. So we're going back to Lost in Translation. Uh, this is Sofia Coppola's 2003 film about a very miserable man and a very miserable woman who happens to be substantially younger than the miserable man. Uh, Joe, this is something that I didn't expect you to suggest to us, but I'm delighted that you did come to the table with this suggestion. Well, look, here was my thinking. Here was my thinking. I had two options. I was thinking of the US office because that is a go-to, especially over the past year. And that's what I dip into if I need to kill 25 minutes or want to just get away from things for 25 minutes uh, during the day. We start work at two o'clock quite often. So that's a real go-to. I was thinking about that. The other thing I would watch a huge amount, which puts me in a good mood, and I would recommend it to everybody, is Own Sheehan reviewing Japanese sweets. It's available on <laughs> YouTube. Uh, it can only lead you to a happy place. And then this one jumped to mind as well. Look, the reason I went for this one, if, uh, if I wasn't talking to uh, two lovely people like yourselves, I probably would have said, okay, well, we'll just go US office because it's, um, it's a less intimate portrayal of the human condition but then sue was saying she didn't want to watch all 10 seasons of the u.s office and she would watch lost in translation i didn't so. say that i said i didn't <laughs> i won't get a chance to sorry she's four episodes under her belt so i thought four okay episodes. it's embarrassing Only we'll go, that. <laughs> yeah i thought i thought we'll go lost in translation then and uh, let's see where the conversation goes yeah when was the first time you saw this movie so it was released in 04 and i was uh, somewhere between first and second year of college at nui Maynooth. And I had a glance back. I mean, I was really into film then. I was reading Empire and Total Film and listening to everything and watching everything. I was a film nerd at that stage. And I was doing English, so I kind of, I guess there was a, there's a slight link there. It's the arts and all that stuff. And I don't think film in 04 was great. I had a look back at, you know, some of the big movies of 04 and it was like Shrek 2, Harry <laughs> Potter, Spider-Man 2, the Incredibles, yeah, Passion of the Christ. I mean, I watched Ooh. it. It wasn't bad at the time, but it's not a repeat viewer, I don't think. No. Day After Tomorrow, Troy, you know, Brad Pitt jumping around like it's in ancient Greece, Ocean's 12, Lord of the Rings. For me, none of those movies were any good. I mean, they're kids' movies, some of them as well. But, you know, it was the age of, like, blockbuster really starting, formulaic rom-coms, just a bit meh. Empire said of Lost in Translation at the time, uh, this film will restore your faith in the power of the medium. And I definitely got sucked into, like there were, there were, it was an interesting period away from the mainstream movies because Lost in Translation was out around this time. Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind came out and I thought that was 
amazingly original. There were films like Sideways knocking around. So I was just thinking of Sideways, yeah. Good like really nice well. art house kind of stuff. Yeah, the art house stuff was really happening. I think it's because it was getting cheaper and cheaper to make movies actually around then. I'd say that's what it was. And there were actors who wanted to do good stuff. So um, look, in the midst of uh, Harry Potter and Ocean's 12, something like Lost in Translation was amazing. I didn't see it in the cinema. I didn't see it in the cinema. I know that. and But I do remember really loving it. And I think in part it's because I had left all my amazing school friends, like friends I'd had since I was five. And I'd pitched up in university. I was doing an arts degree, like 12 hours a week, 250 people in each class. It was hard to sit next to the same person once a semester, let alone strike up friendships. And I was living at home, which made it doubly hard to make friends. So like that was an extremely lonely period of my life for sure. And this film taps into that theme. So I do remember really kind of submerging into this film and, and it really kind of, you know, just registering with me in a, in a kind of uh, uh, a deep way, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, at the time, yeah. So yeah, I do remember like going, oh my God, this is for me. These themes, they were crying out to 19 year old me, very lonely, traping into university every day. Living yeah. at home, obviously. Yeah, yeah, which is such a, like, if I can give anyone any advice in life, don't be at yeah, home Yeah, I'm the same. I lived at home in college as well, oh, and it's horrendous. Because you get that phone call at two o'clock in the morning from your mother going, where are you? And you're like, seriously? <laughs> yeah, and like, <laughs> it's harder to make friends and stuff, and it just, it's such a bad move. It's not what college is about. If you can avoid it, like I, I have to think I did it in hindsight, because I was thinking, well, God, I don't expect my parents to pay for rent. And so I picked college like 15 minutes yeah. away in Maynooth so that I could stay at home. And two younger brothers, just... Bad move, bad move. See, was this a good time for cinema, 2003, 2004? Yeah, I agree with, like, The Day After Tomorrow was the one that really kind of, I was like, oh my God, what a shit blockbuster. It seemed like they were just making blockbusters for blockbusters' sake that year, like, just really bad movies. But I remember um, The Machinist, I think, was out that year as well. I remember, like, I was like, Joe was just really getting into film at that stage and was like, Christian Bale is just amazing. One of those kind of phases. Um, but I didn't see Lost in Translation until I worked in Extravision and it was a, like a couple of years later. <laughs> I remember we're such like assholes and I look back now like we were those people that like watched everything that was on the shelves and when people came up with like the day after tomorrow so we just like judged them at the counter and just like really you want to get that okay. But like Lost, we were all like Lost in Translation is just the greatest thing ever and I just remember like a bit like Joe like when I finished college I did a master's in classics. And when I left, I was like, what, what am I doing with life? And I think her character, Charlotte's character really mm. spoke to me because I just felt like she was graduated. She was married, obviously very young. I was not married very young, but it was a very like, what am I doing with my life? And where mm. do I sit? And what, like she really, I remember like specifically her character really speaking to me, but I was afraid to go yeah. back to it. I really, I really was afraid to go back to that film because it just the rawness of that, like when she says to him, I, I, I don't know, you know, they're lying in the bed and she's like, I'm stuck. I don't want, yeah, I'm stuck. I don't want, and yeah, that admission to somebody is just like, it was, I, I really found it difficult to go back and watch that because mm. I remember being that person and being like, what am I doing? Yes. I, <laughs> I, I watch it now and it's not as raw, but at the time when she said I'm stuck, I was like, my God, I'm so stuck. Cause I, I regretted doing the degree I was doing instantly. And I think like you, I wasn't married. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But you can relate to somebody who has 
left the station and they've started along certain train tracks and pretty quickly they're looking around saying, I'm not so sure this is the right track for me. And, you know, the worry is 10 years go by and your life's a mess. So she was, I think she was facing into that possibility and I definitely was. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly how I felt about it as well. But I just remember it being... We, we, when we were going to the cinema at that stage, like there was all those big blockbusters that were out, but there was an art house cinema in Galway. There was one screen that used to show art, art house films, like things like Old Boy and like Korean films. And we all, we were the Ponzi extra vision people who were like, we'll go to the art house cinema and we'd like get our mm-hmm. glass of wine. Who do we think we were anyway? <laughs> but it was just like, I remember it being so, those films and that year were so different than the stuff that was in the main part of the cinema. And it, like, the lines have blurred a little bit, I think, since because good movies do have bu- good budgets behind them or whatever. Now it's just it was so different in two thousand three, two thousand four. Like, yeah, it's really interesting going through the Academy Awards that Lost in Translation was nominated in. Like, you look at the best original screenplay, which it wins. Finding Nemo was one of the uh, nominees in there, which is nothing against That's Finding Nemo. I love, <laughs> I love, film. Yeah, I love yeah. that film. But does that get into the best original screenplay nominations at any other point? Maybe in the ten years. After that, maybe not. Now, in fairness, it's in America, dirty, pretty things and the barbarian invasions in there as well. They were lucky that Lord of the Rings Return of the King was obviously an adapted screenplay, which picks up the big one. But it's nominated for Best Picture. It's nominated, obviously, uh, through Bill Murray uh, for Best Actor. Uh, And when it comes to Best Actress, uh, there's no nomination here uh, for uh, Johansson, for Scarlett Johansson, which is controversial, I think, uh, which you'll get to because... I don't know, this is an unbelievable performance from somebody who was 17 years of age. I feel more uncomfortable is. about that as the decades yeah. go on. Yeah. I, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't realize at the time she was 17. Yeah. So there is that, there is that, but it's... But she, it's well, she's 17, like she, I, she definitely feels like an old soul in a young body to me oh, though. Yeah. You know, and like I love that story about when she met her and she was like, I'm really not sure if I should be casting a 17 year old. And she was just like, she's perfect. And offered her to her without audition. Like, because you really get the feeling that she's lived a life. Like she was a child actress. She's been around for a while. She's seen a lot of things. And I don't know, there's just a hollowness about her that really comes through on the screen. Yeah. I thought she was perfect. Stillness about her. Mm. I think that when it comes to that casting decision, and I think Sofia Coppola was quite was pivotal to, to casting Scarlett Johansson she had her idea when she wrote this that she wanted Bill Murray as the male lead and maybe not to that extent but she wanted Scarlett Johansson to lead on the female front as well which I guess is understandable I mean the, the whole moral dilemma of uh, I guess casting a child in an adult's role it's kind of out the window with with Sofia Coppola given what she had gone through as a child she had to grow up pretty damn quick herself and like I always find her career arc absolutely fascinating because I knew nothing about her other than the fact that she was Francis Ford's daughter before mm. watching Godfather 3. And when you watch yeah. Godfather 3, your initial reaction is, oh my God, <laughs> like she is so bad. She is so mm. bad. And I feel really bad for saying that now, but she was completely out of her depth. I mean, Winona Ryder was supposed to play the role of the daughter in Godfather 3 and she had a lot of personal problems going on. I know they tried to get Julia Roberts to replace her. She couldn't do it. She'd committed to flatliners. Madonna had been seen as two old. So Francis Ford Coppola casts his daughter as like four choice backup and she's just not ready for it. And as it turns out, her acting career ends as a result of that. This horrific public experience of, oh, nepotism got her a gig and she absolutely tanked. Doesn't really act again after Godfather 3. I think she like appears as... um, 
uh, as one of the, the the women in Phantom Menace without much of a line, one of the princesses in the background in, in the Phantom Menace. And I think she appears in a few music, music videos, but mm-hmm. it ends her acting career. So in, in a way, you can you can see why she kind of sympathizes with the idea that Scarlett Johansson should be absolutely thrown in there as as um, as a young actor into this role. Yeah, I, like it's an, it's an amazingly brave choice because so much was going to be reliant on this 17-year-old's performance. This wasn't, uh, this isn't a plot-driven film and this isn't a set-piece film. It's all about the looks and the nods and the body language and the pauses. And I guess, you know, Bill Murray's going to deliver and it seems she stalked uh, Murray to get him. She wrote the role for Murray. But like to trust Johansson to pull this off ostensibly in a film where lots of people sit there with their arms folded and say, well, nothing's happening. You know, if Johansson had tanked, those people with their arms crossed may have had a better point, you know? So it was unbelievably brave. At that stage, I was reading um, Murray had given up on having an agent. So he just had like an 1800 number where you leave a voicemail and she left like (laughs) hundreds of voicemails. Bill, please ring me back. I've written a film for you. And eventually he did. <laughs> yeah, like I, I wonder what what his reaction is when reading it. Like, I, I mean, again, this is being very cynical on my part, but does he see the surname of the author and mm. think to himself, "I got to give this a read"? It probably oh. helps. And I, I'd love to because he, he doesn't do any interviews on it. Like, even in the script, you know, the scene in the sushi bar where they're having some fun and she's showing him her uh, broken, broken toe, toe, and there's a guy saying, "You know, he'd love that there. He'd, he'd serve that here." All the all the script says there is he tries to make her laugh. <laughs> That's all the script says. Yeah. <laughs> and I looked at this like uh, 75 pages or something in the script. Like the rule of thumb is like a, a page a minute. 75 pages for what? It's a 90 minute, 100 minute film. Like there are a lot of pauses. There are a lot of nothing happening in that. I know. But like the other thing about it, Sophie, like I really feel the reason she cast Johansson was she saw herself in her. Mm. Like I, I loved reading mm-hmm. back about her and the, the fact that she just like went to Tokyo to see if she'd work in fashion and she just seemed completely lost. And I think like some of those people get bad raps because like, oh, you poor thing. You're a really famous director's daughter. But like this, you're kind of, your life is kind of predetermined when you grow up famous. And it's kind of like you're on this path and that's who you're going to become. And she was lost. And I think that really comes through in Scarlett Johansson's character as well. Like it is her. Totally. And there was no way she was going to play it. But I well, love that about it. Yeah. I always remember John Gregory famously saying of Stan Collymore, how can you be depressed on 30 grand a year? So <laughs> look, if anyone thinks, oh, well, Sophia Coppola was famous from a young age. So what problems? What about her? I mean, if you're living in pain on a regular basis, it's your own pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, like it's it's 100 she saw herself not only in johansson but also like in, in the character i mean mm. she gets divorced to spike jones the year the movie actually comes out i mean this is the story of herself but like i'd like to know what the inspiration was for the bill murray character to be honest because it's definitely mirroring her own experience in tokyo like just to kind of round up like on that initial experience watching it the first time it's amazing how much this movie is like infiltrated different parts of culture because I, I was like trying to think when was the first time i watched this and it's actually relatively recently like i'm, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with uh, a house dj called fatima yamaha from the netherlands uh, it, you know we're not you yeah. know we're not you didn't need to this say is that. Just the most own like segue <laughs> don't make me answer that question but he, his, his most famous song, which doesn't really get notoriety until around 2014, despite the fact that it came out in 2004, has uh, a 
kind of like a, a moment of tranquility around three or four minutes in where the beach just goes away and we just hear Scarlett Johansson's voice come in and it is that I'm stuck monologue. So that was the first time I heard it. I was like, this is an absolute tune. And hold on a minute, what is that? So the first time I watch it, then it kind of connects and I'm like, all no oh, right, that's from that. So, which is no way. really unusual. Um, I think it's something that like DJs try to do is like just put in some sort of monologue and I, whatever it was about that Scarlett Johansson monologue, it's obviously the bit from the movie that people, people look at. Yeah, it's the centerpiece. You know, it's where, I mean, they're two strangers. Like their first conversation is half hour into the movie and even that is pretty intimate. And Coppola did make the point that sometimes when you're talking to a stranger and you know it's going to be fleeting, it allows you to be a bit more open, you know, and, and right from the off. Because it's quite interesting when he first arrives at the hotel and, you know, there's a very intense isolation about him. And, you know, he arrives and there's a dreamlike quality, you know, and the beautiful music when it starts in the opening scene and he's through Tokyo and rubbing his eyes and he gets to the hotel and like there's a fax from his wife saying, you forgot the kid's birthday, have a good time, X. And you're like, geez, passive aggressive mm-hmm. much. And he's and, and it cuts to him, that movie poster of him sitting on the bed alone, all the kind of luxury you want and he's still very lonely. But he goes downstairs to the bar out of sheer boredom and wanting, I think, to get away from his own head. And it's interesting there, the two fanboys are like, geez, it's him, it's him, it's him. And they try and strike up conversation with him. And they're like, oh my God, it's you. Did you do your own stunts? And what are you doing here? And he says, uh, seeing friends and walks off. And yet when they eventually meet Johansson and uh, Murray, you know, it's what are you doing here? And instead of him saying, seeing friends, he kind of looks at her, he says, taking a break from my wife, missing my son's birthday, getting paid $2 million to do a commercial when I should be doing a play somewhere. You know, so the intimacy is struck from the first hello. And he asks her, you know, and she says, husband here in work. I'm not, I've got nothing going on. How long are you married? Two years, you 25 long ones. She says, you're probably having a midlife crisis. Did you buy a Porsche yet? He (laughs) said, you know, I was thinking about buying a Porsche. And so, and and, and then it's end scene pretty quickly. Um, And she says, you know, philosophy graduate and doesn't, and he's like, well, there's a book in that racket. And she's like, yeah. so the intimacy is struck early on, but you're right. The, the, the set piece confession of I'm stuck, does it get any easier? And he says, no. <laughs> and then he says, yes. Uh, but concedes marriage is always difficult. That's, you know, uh, I, think, I think great art in all its forms, it gets us beyond the conversations we're having over the fence with the neighbor, you know, and I find small talk very dull and tedious. You know, some people love it. I'm not a natural extrovert. So, um, and I love you guys, of course, though, when I see you guys. Um, but <laughs> we I feel have like intense conversations, though, I feel we would have more. I feel we would have more interesting conversations. So I think everyone, to some extent or other, no, so, no to be fair, actually, I think the extroverts, I've, like my, my best man at my wedding is just such an extrovert. So he loves if he's at the canteen and he sees someone he sees once every two weeks and they're like, so what are you doing on the weekend? Not much. What are you doing? Not much, you know. He like, this is great. We're connecting. Mm. Whereas for me, I feel like this is all a front. You know, (laughs) what do you really think? What's going on? Like, how are you? Uh, They're the conversations I want. And Lost in Translation is that conversation. Can I I bring in a mad side point here? I don't know if you ever listened to the Modern Love podcast from the New York Times, but there's one, there was one particular one where this guy decided he was not going to do small talk anymore. So... Mm. (laughs) He was like, I'm not going to do that thing at parties where people just talk about what they're doing at the weekend or what the weather's like or what they're doing with their kids. And he said, every single time I meet somebody new, I'm going to have an intense conversation. And he explained it to them every single time that he did it. 
and like the conversations and the people he met and the encounters he had like it's well worth a listen but I, I just felt like it just reminded me so much when I was watching this film as well that there's just no small talk Not like really. it's straight into like really deep 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 conversations and I definitely think it's because they're fish out of water in a foreign country and they're just like desperate like there's this desperation that comes off the two of them mm. to make a connection with somebody yes. and they're just they just need to have something that's a bit deeper and the Anna Faris character is that and look you know? Anna, Anna Faris's <laughs> Anna Faris's character like this is not a perfect film Anna Faris's character is a little bit one note yeah. I mean <laughs> nobody could exactly be that exactly the same character in Just Friends she is yeah. exactly the same character so you know Anna Faris is when I'm like oh look I'll forgive how cliche she is because it's a movie and they only have so much time but, but she's there to prove a certain point so um, yeah that small talk idea god that's interesting and again like back to me especially at that time my life at that stage was like, again, sitting beside someone new in college, it was small talk central. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like this, the four yeah. minutes before the lecture starts, it was, ah, yeah, ah, yeah, ah, <laughs> never see you again. <laughs> so it was the antithesis of what happens in this 102 minutes in Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. like the Anna Faris introduction, I just find like, it, it's hilarious really. And I, I do think that it, you've made this point, I can't remember if you just said it's off air or on air, Sue, but you've made a point that this is way funnier the more you rewatch this movie. And hmm. when uh, Johansson's husband turns to her and is like, not everybody went to Yale after they've met Anna Faris for the first time, it's like, no, they didn't. But the Anna Faris character is genuinely stupid. She didn't go to Yale, but she's genuinely stupid. <laughs> yeah. Like, and if, he, if he'd said, not everyone has a high school diploma, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, I guess, I, I'm just trying to think, like, I mean, my, my first time watching that scene, I'm thinking there's obviously a sexual tension here between him and Anna Faris's character. I apologize for, for not remembering her name. Uh, and Charlotte Johansson's character is, is like mystified, not by the fact that a sexual tension exists. I think she, I think she kind of is, is pretty confident that, that he is cheating on her with her she's wondering what do you see in her that mm. that's got the sort of shifty eyes it's brilliantly directed uh, it, where as that conversation between those two people is happening we actually see more of charlotte who's not speaking at all during that conversation yeah. and she's like what is going on here as she begins to have her first real worry about one of the, the structures of her relationship which is her husband who is into a fairly vacuous individual yeah, is an asshole. Yeah, an absolute <laughs> asshole. And then I think, by extension, she's like, "What does that say about me?" A little bit. I, I don't know. Like, I think you can drill down into that mm. quite a bit. Oh yeah, like I definitely think you know. The she opens the it's like a pocket thing, and the pictures fall out, and she's looking at it, and I really feel like she's looking at it, going, "Who is this woman? <laughs> like, why is she with this guy?" It's like a complete. She's like she's looking at a complete stranger. She's yeah. just completely questioning what her entire. I love that about it. And I love how the, the Anna Faris character pops up at the end again, then when she's doing the karaoke, and the, which actually really makes me laugh. And the two of them are trying to run past her, past her into the, it's past the lobby. Like, and you're just like, yeah, like she's just vacuous. There's just nothing. There's nothing there. Yeah. That's such a good point you make on about like the camera is on. Sorry, I'm just going to call her Scarlett Johansson because that's yeah. just how you. The camera's on Johansson and those two are talking because the conversation they're having is unimportant and it's on Johansson, as you said, looking back between them. And I guess, Sue, you just mentioned her and Bill Murray running off when Anna Faris is horribly singing. And, you know, you compare, you juxtapose those two moments. And so she's very alone initially watching her husband. What is going on here with this? Oh my God, this is an awful thing. And yet, Bill Murray, she doesn't need to explain to Bill Murray why Anna Faris is terrible. 
You know what I mean? He gets, they, they don't even have to say it. It's like, yeah. oh, so for her, it's like, oh my God, I'm not being gaslit. Like these people are terrible. And yeah. Bill Murray sees it too. You know, that's yeah, what, yeah. and it's such clever filmmaking in so many small ways. Like it's 102 minutes, but it's a tight 102 minutes. And even that, you know, that just, why do we show Anna Faris and these two laughing at her? It oh. only, only takes like 30 seconds, man. Yeah. But there's a lot going on in it. There. I love the Evelyn Waugh thing as well. Sorry, when he, she's just like, Evelyn Waugh was a man and she thinks it's really funny mm. and he completely doesn't get it. And you're just like, that is pretty funny. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. um, Joe, how have your favourite moments changed during the years? This is like our vehicle of going through some of the scenes now. So like, feel free to bring in whatever you want here. But what comes to mind in terms of a, a scene that you would have looked at differently when you were an NEYM student compared to now? Well, I mean, I joke to Sue that as time goes by, I'm relating less to Scarlett Johansson and more to Bill Murray. <laughs> well, you're, you're less 17-year-old uh, woman and you are more your <laughs> man. Beaten down man. Um, look, I, um, I don't know how often I've watched this. I would say a lot in my college years and then I would say I could have gone six, seven, eight, nine, maybe a decade since I watched it up until about three, four weeks ago. It's so weird that I watched it three or four weeks ago and, and then you guys had the podcast going. So the reason I, I didn't watch it for a decade was because it was becoming a bit too familiar. And I said, I'm going to take a break for this. And I do remember at certain points, you know, two years later, thinking, will I watch Lost in Translation now? And I could remember it all too well, so I didn't. And it was only in the last kind of year that I thought, you know, I don't really remember this, you know, scene by scene. So I think that's why I watched it. So I approached it with trepidation as well. One, primarily I thought, God, this is not going to be as good as I remember. And like, maybe there's just something beautiful about having had that experience with this uh, movie. And it meant a lot to me at the time. Why sully that? You know, I, and, and sometimes I don't watch stuff back even we do an off the ball because I'm like, I feel that went well and I remember it in a nice way. I'm going to leave it at that. Like I've never watched my wedding video even though we, like, we paid a stupid amount of money to get someone to film the thing. Uh, but I, I say, I've said to Keely, because a few times she has said, will we watch our wedding video? And I'm like, no, it's perfect in my head. It's perfect in my head. You know, it can't, it can only be ruined. You know, I'll just see things I hate about myself and, you know, we're not, we're not doing that. So um, about scenes, I was very worried that the ending would not hold up or that I, I would find the ending a bit meh because I thought it was beautiful at the time. And that really held up. I thought that was even more beautiful, uh, the whisper. And I, I just adore the opening with Murray going through Tokyo. And I was mm -hmm. worried that this time around, Tokyo wouldn't seem like the exotic place it felt in 04. And, but it's still, whatever way it's shot, it's gorgeous. Um, and I, I was, I was, I, I, I approached the I'm stuck scene. Again, I thought all this stuff could become very cliched and that, you know, it was just me a little bit younger and more impressionable. And to be fair, it kind of held up. Like it's, it's, it's not subtle. It's not subtle, those conversations. But then again, they're so intimate that it all kind of held up. So I, I still really enjoyed the I'm stuck scene. Mm -hmm. um, and I love their opening inter interaction. I, I forgot how kind of funny and good that was. Um, and the only other thing which kind of jumped out at me, and I'd forgotten this, is that uh, Francis Ford had said to Sophia, look, film's going. It's, it's pretty much out of date. You need to shoot this on high def, you know? Um, that's where film is now. And in fairness to her, 
she declined the advice of Francis Ford Coppola, which is a ballsy <laughs> enough thing to do. And she she wanted the whole thing to be kind of dreamlike and to feel, you know, almost as it's happening, it's already in the past. And, you know, sometimes the lovely moments of your life feel that way. I, I don't know, it's probably a negative bias I have, but even as something magical is happening, it strikes me how fleeting it is, you know. Mm. I can't get away from that no matter what I'm doing. I always, sometimes I'll say, God, take this in, take this in, take, you know, my wedding day, take this in, take this in. Um, and I think this has a brilliant, it was such a brilliant move on her part to shoot it in film. And that jumped out at me because I'm not used to watching stuff on film anymore. It's all, you know, digital and high def. And she said she wanted it to feel like a memory and a love story and already sort of hazy, you know, so there's a kind of haziness to the whole thing, which I'd forgotten about. And it's because she had the courage of her convictions to ignore, you know, well, this is the way film is going. You have to shoot in high def. Everyone's shooting high def. She said, no, this is film because this is almost already a memory. This is already, you know, a li- you're a little bit disconnected from the humdrum of a reality. So as opposed to a scene I could give you, that kind of overall dream-like quality kind of, it was just, I, 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 I was most pleased I resubmerged into it and went with it again. Yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's really interesting that that conversation around trying to, to soak that in. I think you get, obviously, Bill Murray going through Tokyo at the start, gazing at the, the lights of yeah. the city. And then you have Scarlett doing it later on in the, in the movie as well, that exact same thing. And it's them trying to soak it in. I think there's a, a lot of moments where it seems that they're doing that. And I guess that is one of the things that they probably, certainly from Bill Murray's point of view, he probably has a lot of regrets in his life when it comes to not soaking things in. Like maybe, like it, let's tie the US office in here for a bit. And uh, like right. G- G- Jim and Pam, when they're on their way to their to their wedding in the US office, have a conversation with one another and they say, we're going to take Well, they get married. That's snapshot. great. Oh, sorry. Yeah, spo- spoiler. Shocked. Shock horror. And they're having this exact same conversation about taking these yeah. mental pictures throughout their wedding day because they're so terrified of the whole thing slipping through their fingers. So what you have at the end point of that is Bill Murray, who has seen a lot of sand slip between his fingers throughout time, has ended up in a place that he feels totally miserable with. And now he's just trying to recapture that by being as sentimental as possible with every living second he's spending in Tokyo. Now, there is one counterpoint to this argument that I make there, which is the fact that he doesn't really do much with his time in Tokyo. It's only really when he meets her that he starts to come out of his shell. He is drinking in the hotel bar for the majority of the movie. What a waste to time in I, Tokyo. See, I think he is so lost. I think that's why she means as much to him as he means to her. You know, I, I kind of saw it more from her vantage point a lot when I was younger, but like, he really is, you know, he rings his wife and those conversations are awful, you know? I was about to say that's one of my favorite scenes because I really feel like that show, the scene when he's drunk and he rings her mm. and then he puts down the phone and goes, well, that was a bad idea. And you're just like, oh no. And he's like, he's dying for, like, it's that thing about the connection again, but he's just dying to talk to his, his wife, his old yes. wife, is the person he married, not the person who's like trying to shove the kids out the door and like yeah. completely ignoring him. And it broke my heart. And like his whole character arc and everything he just i really feel like he lets me down as a character like when he sleeps with the singer i'm just i'm so disappointed and i was watching it back and i was like is she jealous or is she just disappointed in him as a person i I can never figure that out what do you think if you had to guess i i feel there's a little bit of jealousy because she really thought that he was her person when they were there 
but I don't know if it's a romantic thing. And actually, one of the things I wrote down, I was like, one of the things that really irks me about this film is I can never figure out what is the connection between them. Is it a father-daughter, like, you know, relationship, like he's trying to mentor her? Is it romantic? Is it a friendship? What happens to them afterwards? Do they ever get back in contact again? Like, that stuff actually really perplexes mm. me and makes me anxious when I watch this film. And the kiss at the end really i hate it I improvised hate yeah it's the one thing i don't like about that film yeah it really it really bothers me because it really takes me out of their relationship and mm. makes me go did i misunderstand what was happening yeah that was these a, two? that was a misstep i think that yeah was, was it was improvised was it yeah oh i didn't realize that was improvised and then when you know she's 17 i'm like oh i really that snaps me out of it for a second but yeah, yeah I, I i don't like that um Actually, by the way, on The Office, one of the reasons I was like, I'm picking the US office, and it ties in perfectly with this theme, is towards the very end, and like, I love the US office. I mean, I know you love it, Owen, and again, it's not plot-driven in many ways, although a lot happens, I suppose, but it's towards the end, and is it, God, I'm so bad with names, uh, is it Andy? Is that his name, the guy who plays the guitar and is really yeah. musical, and he's going off to play music? So Andy is obsessed with uh, Cornell the whole time? Yeah. <laughs> And talking, you know, geez, the good, at Cornell, we used to do this and it was so good and they were the good old days and God, I'd love to be back in Cornell. And it's amazing, uh, at 10 seasons of The Office and he's doing a little bit to camera and he says this thing where he's like, um, you know, I always thought Cornell was the good old days. And I think now actually all this time I've been hating being in this office that these were the good old days. And he goes, I just wish someone would tell you that you were in the good old days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the most profound thing you'll ever see. You know, yeah. it really is. And um, I think that, you know, ties in with trying to, like that fleetingness of life and all that kind of stuff, which is a big part of this. Um, that just popped in my head when you mentioned The Office. Yeah. And I think that that's definitely the case from her standpoint. I think she's almost trying to look for a preview from Bill Murray. It's kind of yeah. like when she's like, yeah. does this get easier? It's like, uh, should I be soaking in this uh, a little bit more? Um, like when we go through these scenes, Sue, I'm, I'm conscious not to, to rain in your parade here because you've got the definitive sequence of things we need to talk about in this movie. You've got a list of every time. <laughs> You've got a list of every time Bill Murray made you oh, laugh. Oh, made me laugh. Yeah, so I think, yeah. I think we should bring this into play right now. Because I, let me just give you the background to this, because I, like I said to you, I feel like this is a, my impression of this film and going back into it was, oh God, am I really going to watch this film again? It is really depressing. Like that was my thought. Yeah. And I just went back and laughed so many times. Like I was properly laughing last night watching this. I was like, I don't remember laughing this much the first time around. Mm. But okay, here's my list. When he, the silly things, right? When he's asked the cross trainer, like the thing that I love about Bill Murray is like anyone else in a cross trainer is just a stupid actor on a cross trainer. Bill Murray on a cross trainer is hilarious. It yeah. just like immediately helps. Help! Help! help. <laughs> and trying to like press the dot, like it's yeah. just so good. The curtain scene when the curtains open. The next morning, just, sorry. Like, after the, after. The- the- after, after the cross trainer, when he goes into the lobby and the Japanese uh, entourage are like, are you okay? As he's limping yeah. out of the lobby. It's, yeah. That's the money shot like. <laughs> <laughs> and you, but so you know, and, but even it's so clever, the precursor that was, uh, that was 25 minutes in, the first time they made eye contact really and she sent him over a drink. Yeah. yeah. He's kind of thinking, I still got it. <laughs> and then he, get, he, he gets into the elevator and the elevator is mirrored. So the doors close. And he's suddenly hit with, oh my God, look how yeah. old I am. And then the next scene is him in the, uh, the, in the gym. Yeah. Like you don't need to be Freud either, you know? <laughs> yeah, I just love it. It's just like brilliant, like physical comic acting. 
um, the, the rip my stockings thing. I oh, was, yeah. I forgot <laughs> lip, how funny. Lip, <laughs> lip them. <laughs> when she falls uh, over the side of the bed and she's uh, like, "Let me go," and he's like, "Gladly." Like, it's just the entire scene is just so good. Oh, Mister Powers, Mister Powers. <laughs> It's <laughs> so good. Um, the director scene sometimes just makes me feel really annoyed, but the stills photographer and all of the cast of people that he does the impressions of for like that five minutes, I was like, that is genius. Like, it's yeah. just so, so, so good. All improvised as well. Or yeah. I, th- I think uh, Coppola was in the photographer's ear being like, say Roger Moore next and stuff like that. She would pop in and they just film for ages and use the best bits. Best that's right. Like, and you know, that works so well. And Sue, sorry, continue on. But like... <laughs> Uh, with Murray and his career and where he is in his life, that was the one time you saw like him come alive a little bit. Like, oh, I can see how he used to love doing this. You know, he he, he forgets for like two minutes that he's doing a commercial and it's really grim and he's, you know, selling out big time and he actually starts like getting into it, you know. <laughs> but then there's a moment of, oh, the then, he re- then he remembers <laughs> I'm fucking such a sellout. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the bit where he goes off at the party and she goes to find him and he goes my Japanese got better I started talking in English I just laugh at that every single time I think it's such a brilliant line um, the hospital waiting room when he's oh, waiting yeah. for her the x-ray and he starts talking to oh my and the two women laughing behind like that properly makes me laugh and the last one you know when he calls her and he's not sure if she's going to come down to the lobby and he's like you, you kept my jacket enjoy enjoy my jacket which you stole from me I know the dryness <laughs> is just a joy <laughs> just doesn't know how to put any of his emotions in he's like clearly I'll just end this with a really funny show it's just so brilliant it's just so Bill Murray you know yeah and like as you mentioned as you alluded to like the, the whiskey ad scene the initial one after a few minutes is just an all, that's just an all-time classic like that's that's just yeah. so so funny is that um, really what he said that doesn't yeah. sound like what he said <laughs> Yeah, like I, it's um, I don't know. I, I'm personally not a massive Bill Murray fan. Like I, I've, I have reservations even about Groundhog Day, to be honest, which everybody thinks is an absolute all-time classic. But I, I really don't... feel like you should have told us this before you came on this, because that's yeah. just not acceptable. Yeah, yeah no, I, it's. Can it, I just I, talk to Sue here? Do you mind? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, not a not a huge fan. Now, like I mean, this this for me is like his crowning glory, in in my opinion, from the Bill Murray f- films I've seen. I just yeah. love him in this. He is like genuinely lovable in this, well, except for the part that obviously um, a like, kiss at the end, yeah, which is just uh, a, li- a little bit strange. Um, like uh, a couple of other things, Joe. I first of all, mm. just wanted to get your take on Bill Murray's golf swing, which is very good. Import- which is important. I did want to, to know about this. The oh, second I saw it, I was like, "This is so Joe likes." It's real. <laughs> It's a real, I mean, you know, he plays in the programs and stuff. It's a, it's a yeah. good golf swing. Yeah. Right. Um, next up, the soundtrack to this movie. Oh, Absolutely I'm class. Class. So bloody good. When Just Like Honey starts at the end, yeah. why, why is that so affecting? Why? So he's, he's whispered into her ear and we sort of know what he's whispered into her ear now because of the internet. And he gets in the car. Why, when that starts and he's getting further away from her and going through Tokyo. And why is that so affecting that music? Uh, I think all that era of music is kind of affecting, isn't it? Whether they pick Jesus and Mary chain or the my cure yeah. or my bloody Valentine. Like I know my, my bloody Valentine, like there's another couple of tracks for them in it. Like it, I just think that's it. That's just a genre. And it's kind of like, let's it's let's college get... angsty. Like, Oh my God, my feelings type yeah. thing. <laughs> Jeez, that scene every time gets me I don't know what it is I think maybe because in 04 goodbyes were probably a goodbye 
Like if it, this movie was made mm. in 2021, you'd be like, she'll probably slide into his DMs in an hour. Yeah. But there was, that, a, there was a degree of finality to that goodbye. And yeah. that's actually a theme throughout really is the, the pre-social media elements to the whole thing that he is very much shut off the United States from his life. He, he is very much in this, in this bubble now because mm. he's got his house phone and he's got maybe a memo under the door, but it's, he's an island at this point. And I think mm. that in that hotel, it's, it's just him and her, whereas maybe post-social media, that would be a little bit less realistic. Well, they'd just be on their phones in the bar, wouldn't they? Yeah. So that's it. That's it. Or she, she would be on Tinder or something like that and he, he would be on Bumble or vice versa. And so we're just trying to get rid of the unhappiness. Like That's actually something that's kind of refreshing about this as well, is that the, the lack of... The, the lack of Bill Murray trying to go after something sexual in this, which you have to be thinking at a, at a certain point in the movie, you're thinking, well, this is all he's after sort of thing. He's, he's away yeah. from the wife. And, and it's as simple as that. And that's actually why I think the I'm stuck scene, uh, sorry to go way back to this again, but that, no, that's, what, point. That, that's why I think that that, movie, that point, that moment is less, you can forgive her for being less subtle because it isn't the climax uh, in, a, in a sexual way where these two people finally get it on. It's yeah. actually the climax where she's like, you know what, I am screwed. I feel screwed. And it's like that weight off her shoulders has yes. finally happened because she's told them, whereas really the audience have known for the entire duration of the film. So I think that's a significant moment for her rather than the audience. Yeah. Their, yeah. I mean, their relationship is so interesting. I think definitely on his part, the initial attraction is sexual. She's young. She's attractive. He's like, well, let's have a chat, you know? And I think on her part, she knows who he is, you know, because she sits down in the bar. The first thing she says to him is, what are you doing here? As in, you know, you're an actor. What are you doing here? And she doesn't go, what do you mean you're shooting a commercial? So she knows who he is and she's young and beautiful and he catches, he sees her in the elevator. So, uh, and I think he's kind of, let's see where it goes. And she's like, well, this is kind of something different. And then somewhere in the midst of it all, he realizes, oh, there's something a bit deeper here. And I think he pulls back from any sense that like he's going to try and pursue anything. But the first time you watch it, it's uncomfortable when he's like carrying her into her bedroom. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. And, and you're like, oh, I, I was like, oh, so I, the first time I watched it, I think all I think it, the first time you watch it, it's distraction. Maybe that's why it's good for a rewatch. The first time you watch it, a big distraction is are they going to hook up? And that would be. Ugh. But then with, with the more you rewatch it and rewatch it and, and you don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, you, you kind of see their relationship more for what it is. Like the closest they come to physical intimacy is when he puts his hand on her foot when they're having the I'm stuck conversation. Yeah. And that's, that's such a non-sexual touch. That's more of, that almost copper fastens, this is not a sexual relationship. That is, that is such a, just I'm a human being, you're a human being. And I just want to acknowledge we're both in the room. And then they both fall asleep. You know, they've had jet lag the whole time. It's no coincidence. That's when they finally fall asleep. They've kind of, empty themselves a little bit so but like it's so interesting like you could make any sort of argument for their relationship like at times i've thought oh do they think they're soulmates and they've just realized we're at the wrong age yeah but then there's that maybe there is the father-daughter thing as well the, the bit for me is when um do you know when they get stuck outside and the fire alarm happens and she says to him that was a really crap lunch and he's like oh my god so bad and the two so of them get in, <laughs> the two of them get into the elevator and there, for me, that's the point where I'm like, is something going to happen mm. here? And it's the first, the first time I really thought that because they keep looking into each other's eyes as opposed, and there's no, there's nothing being said between them. And then she's meant to get out and then she doesn't, no, he's meant to get out and he doesn't get out and she's, she gets out and there's kind of a bit of an awkwardness about, yeah. am I getting out by myself? Are you coming with me? Mm. I really felt like that scene was a bit like something's going to happen here. Mm. And 
the next morning when she, I, what I love about that end scene that you, you're talking about is when he turns her around and she's just crying and you're, she mm. didn't show that emotion to him when they were in the hotel lobby. I just think that's amazing. Beautiful, yeah. Because yeah. if he hadn't randomly spotted her, he, you know, she didn't cry in front of him. Like we're all like that, you know, we're all, we're yeah. all guarded in that way, yeah. Also on the point of what was Bill Murray's intentions throughout, there is their second meeting when she kind of is sick of Anna Faris and her shite. Uh, she goes over to, to chat to, to Bob and she's like, you switch seats. So instead of sitting with his back to where she would be sitting, he had switched seats to look at her, which I found at the time. I was like, oh, like, I mean, what, what's the, this, he's clearly going after her in a, in a very physical sort of way. But then on the rewatch, so, yeah. you're, you're kind of like, it, it is a little bit different. And I, I think that's important. I think that the information that we glean come the end of the movie, I think that's important when you watch it the first time. It, it, like, I, I think that's yeah. almost a bit of a pass for the character uh, at times. And I, I think that is the point of him sleeping with the cocktail singer. Yeah. And he, he wouldn't do that with her. Yeah. Yeah. And then he yeah, yeah. Like, of course, you can, like, I can sleep with someone. That's, and, I, and like, I've forgotten it by lunch. Yeah. That's yeah. not important. Like, he's a movie star. He's probably had hundreds of affairs. Yeah. Yeah, he has he has it in him, and um, just just not whatever. Just one other thing on on the um, on the soundtrack. If you go onto Spotify, yeah. and listen to the Lost in Translation soundtrack, the best track in the movie is not on it. Um, the intro, the not the intro actually for me. It's just my humble opinion. Um, the state we're in by the Chemical Brothers, which plays when they go into the nightclub for the oh, first yeah. point, is not on the official soundtrack. It is, of course, on. Uh, that Chemical Brothers uh, album from whenever 2003, 2004. Mm. And I, I don't know what it is because I know Sofia Coppola appeared in the Chemical Brothers music video um, around the time of her Phantom Menace appearance. She also appeared in a Phoenix music video. Phoenix does make the cut when it comes to the official soundtrack. But uh, that's just one tiny gripe that I, that I have to pick <laughs> with it. But I, I just love that kind of that, that, entire, that entire night out, that, that just sequence oh. of, of, of moments where, I don't know, is, is it... I think that there were, there's been some criticism of this movie basically of being a little bit racist at times. The, the, yeah. The, yeah. The, the twee Japanese stereotypes coming out. But I think that's kind of deliberate. I think that's actually a criticism of age rather than a criticism of Japanese people. Because if you look at the locals that he mixed with on that night out, they're all younger, but they're not. They don't have that sort of, oh, we're in awe of this whiskey ad guy, this, this failed actor. That, that sort of Japanese awe is gone. And all those bad stereotypes are, are out the window. Mm. They're on his level. He's on their level. And I think it's more a criticism of the old people who have gone through life and are in awe of this guy, Bob Harris. Whereas all those kids who are singing karaoke are like, I don't care who this guy is. I just, I just want to have a bit of fun. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think it's a little bit racist. I, I feel like it's a kind of a here we are, these two American people that are wandering around Tokyo and this is the other. Yeah. I, I just got that. Re- and with the friends, you know, when they end up in the strip club and she's like, let's just go. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. But the, like, I don't know. I feel like the perception of everyone is that they're all a bit mad and that they're a bit sane. I don't know. Maybe that's... that's no, I, think, I, I think they're all pretty one-dimensional, a bit like the Anna Faris character for sure. Yeah, yeah. But maybe, maybe to emphasize their sense of being alone together that was the thinking let's make the rest of this deeply inaccessible so it's because it really just feels like it's just them and their little world and maybe if there were other characters who seemed on a level with them that would diminish the intimacy yeah but there's a touch of like the director thing with it oh you know there's a degree of like let's hand this up for comedic value which i'm not sure would have happened in 2021 no 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 and I definitely feel like that's a like a direct thing as well from her filming there because 
you know, the crew she worked with were all local crew and she depended on like local restaurants and that kind of thing. Like there's that story, but you know, the restaurant she was filming in, she was like, what, it was a 15, 20 minutes late to film and they unplugged everything and said that she was disrespecting her and threw her out of the restaurant. So like there is a, it just feels like that translates into the film of her feeling as a director. I'm in this foreign country trying to shoot a movie and it's borderline impossible. And Mm. it must have been like translators for everything must have been really difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To what sense do you guys feel an unbelievable level of wanderlust while watching this? Oh, I know. Just like deep, like it gets me deep. I don't know what it is. I just, I just hate the humdrum, repetitive daily life I'm in. And I'm just like, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to, I want to travel the world and have deep conversations with strangers. And of course it wouldn't happen like that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not realistic, but yeah, there's like, I'd ache for it. I ache to have like, um, I, I, to kind of have those connections with strangers in different locations. Yeah, for sure. And like, I can't, I can't believe if you had said to me, if you had said to me in 04, that 36 or 35 year old me would not have been to Tokyo yet. 21 year old me wouldn't have been happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what, what do you mean? This is top of the list all of a sudden. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not, I don't get the wanderlust with this because it terrifies me. Like, Tokyo genuinely terrifies me. That bit where she goes into the um, the underground and she's, like, looking at the map. Like, I, remember, I think it's because when I moved, I moved to London and I lived in London for about two years and I had no job. The people I lived with all had jobs. And for the first, like, three months, I had no job. So I had to go and, like, explore London all by myself. And... <laughs> I was so miserable and homesick and lost, like, and genuine, as in, I don't mean like, I mean actually physically lost. I didn't know where I was going half the time, trying to get used to the tube and everything. And that, like, looking at her, looking at the map, I was like, I can't, I can't go through that again. Like, it really, the, how, I don't know if this is because of lockdown as well, but how big Tokyo is and how many people there are. And when she's looking out the window and she's looking down on Tokyo, I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I don't need that. Yes, that yeah. terrifies me. Own, gi- <laughs> own, own, given that you asked the question, I suspect you feel the wonder. Want to go back? Oh, um, unbelievably so. But it's really interesting that you pick up on a point there, which it's less to do, well, no, it is absolutely to do with the geography, but it's also to do with the experience yes. of it and the conversations that you have. Like, I do remember that there was like, in Tokyo, there, there is a massive deal made at this hotel that it is like lost in translation is seen by Japanese people as an unbelievable cultural moment for them because of their uh, consumption of, of Western media and like that Park Hyatt Hotel in Tokyo. I think one of the teams in the World Cup were actually saying there like this is a tourist attraction. Go up and drink a cocktail at the top of that bar if you've got money to spend. It is absolutely a thing. But it, it, I think when you look at other movies of this, this genre, like you mentioned Eternal Sunshine, uh, you mentioned Sideways. The one that, that really strikes a similar tone because of the wanderlust with me is Before Sunrise. And I remember being in Vienna interrailing years ago and some guy comes out to the hostel where we're staying to the, to the common area. And it's like, Hey everyone, I'm putting on before sunrise in the room. If you want to watch it. (laughs) And there was just this monsoon of people going in to watch it. And it was kind of like, everybody here must've seen that, or at least a good section of the people. And everybody has come to the city to sort of chase that. And they've all stayed in a hostel to try and meet Mm -hmm. people. And Mm -hmm. that is a, a central part of it. Now, that's I'm sure people person. do that yeah. with, with Tokyo. I, I was only there working and very much on my own, like uh, li- living in my own little Airbnb. But if you're an actual tourist trying to find yourself or find something over there, yes. then I'd imagine you, you get a very similar Vienna vibe to being a tourist in Tokyo. Yeah. 
God, if if you if when you guys make it to season two, can we come back and talk about before sunrise? I mean, yeah. before sunset is great, but before sunrise, I just I've, I've watched that more than um, Lost in Translation for sure. Like, Same. there's a real theme there with like the fleetingness of life and our relationships, and like there, that is life in a microcosm. I mean, if you want to be very morbid about it, and I definitely am prone to some morbid thoughts. I mean, <laughs> you know, we connect with people, we die. So. It's it's that's what Lost in Translation is. That's what Before Sunrise is. Speed it up, and I think that's why it's so affecting that there's these deep connections, and yet they're all too transient. And yes, we get many many decades together, but there is that sense of a clock t- ticking in all those films. Anything with passage of time, any 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 anything with passage of time, uh, just always gets me between the eyeballs. Like Same. It just it's you know we're all living with this awful knowledge that like clock is ticking clock is ticking and um yeah th- those films tap into that in a, in a beautiful way but like jesus you couldn't watch them every day yeah no no and like i guess lockdown does make it a little bit more sort of oh god what did, what did we miss out on before everything went, went down mm. the, the other thing i would we should definitely come back and do before sunrise at one point oh, Pass- yeah. passage of time is a really important facet of that and i'm just going to throw one other movie into that mix which is boyhood and because of that massive passage of time, where if that is just like an absolute w- waterfall, an avalanche of emotion thrown at you, probably a little bit too much. Whereas yeah. Lost in Translation before Sunrise are, are more subtle. I'd actually say Lost in Translation is a way more subtle film uh, than Before Sunrise because. Well, like, quick, just by the way, on the subtle point, I just checked on Google. I, I Googled Lost in Translation because we were doing this chat. Uh, and so my initial Google was whatever. But then the suggested Googles, as in the most popular ones, was first of all, what is the point of Lost in Translation? <laughs> and the second one is, is Lost in Translation boring? <laughs> so, I mean, some people find it a bit too yeah. subtle. Like, because yeah. I, I said to Owen when we were talking about this yesterday, because he was like, I'm going to go watch this. And I said, Yeah, it is, it is slow though. And he was like, Well, I'd say a standstill. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it really struck the, like the word stanchio when I was watching it back. I was like, that is exactly what these are not like. They're not moving in lots of different ways. But the other thing about the wanderlust thing, you know, when you leave a city and you're going in the taxi and you're driving to the airport or you're going to the bus and you're looking around going, I didn't see that thing. Where's that thing? Oh no, we missed this thing. Mm. And I, I feel like that thing with Murray is like he had left so much undiscovered when he was gone. And I love that idea. It's just that, that like, not just with her, but with the city, like, oh my God, how much have I not experienced? I always find with um, cities as well, like when you're looking out the window and there's a degree of like all these parallel lives you could be leading. You know, I find when I go anywhere, like from the age of whenever, like the first, me and my mates went to Edinburgh when I was in college. My my school, my proper mates, not those uh, losers at college I didn't know. (laughs) Um, I'm really sorry for those people who think they're friends. (laughs) You're not now. No, I'm I'm exaggerating. I'm exaggerating. But like, I always look out the window and think, ah, how would my life be in Edinburgh? Or, you know, uh, there's there's always a bit of that, you know? Or what's the worst that could happen? What would happen if I packed it all in now and uh, just became that person that's looking at the bus in this country, speaking a language they don't even speak? Um, Well, I did that a few times. I like packed my stuff and left for Spain and stayed there for like a few months (laughs) with no Spanish and then did the same thing in England and did the same thing in the, and I literally packed up my whole life and was like, I'm moving, goodbye. And then after about six months, I'd be like, I'm coming home now. I I can't do this anymore. But I think I've done it. 
And it's just like, I've experienced that. And I'm like, why would I go through that upheaval again? But I think everyone should do it in their twenties. And I always like, I, when I was looking at her character, I was like, why is she just sitting in this room all the time with these magazines? Like this, this massive city that she's looking over, go out and experience it. And you know, all the fleeting moments that she'll have. It's just, I, she's so, I feel really sorry for her. There's so much that she hasn't discovered, you know? Yeah, and it almost feels that when she goes to that shrine early in the movie, it's kind of like trying to force the issue a little bit. And she's like, oh, I didn't, like maybe it was interesting. And she has a conversation with her friend and her friend kind of is like all over the place on the phone to her. It's like doesn't have any interest in the shrine that she went to see. That she tried to find something in the city and kind of failed, I think, pretty much immediately. Yeah. There, there's, there's so much to this. There's just only a couple of other questions left to answer the first one is the on the tv test joe if this is on if they're 20 minutes gone an hour gone are you, are you no. watching the rest of it no 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 as we start to finish <laughs> this is a lights off i am not going to be disturbed <laughs> preferably on my own let's uh, submerge down into the this this these depths i can't watch this film and have ads for toilet roll on every 20 minutes <laughs> you know what I mean so abs- absolutely not I wouldn't dream of watching this on television that would be blasphemous like that would be a re- I, would re- I, would, I would think less of both of you I would, I would I'd be suspect of how much you like this film if you, if you said you'd watch it on TV no, not a TV it, film it, it, no it's not a TV film because it, it flows it's just one thing like there's no way you could take a break in the middle of this it's a it's a meditation i think yeah. why it works um as a rewatch is this isn't plot driven no like no, I, it's a snapshot of time yeah just just kelly watching um the dark knight 200 times i'm like it feels pretty plot driven to watch 200 times then again the set pieces are good but then actually there's no explaining that uh full stop really the sleep into it but, um, <laughs> But I, I feel you can you can rewatch this. It, this is a meditation. That's what this is. It's a it's a mood. It's it's tapping into a feeling. It's 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 all of that stuff. And so to to watch it on TV, mm. <sighs> yeah. No. I'm I'm going to go ahead and slap a hangover rating, which is our final thing of a 1.7 out of 10 on this because oh, you cannot no. watch this hungover. You can you just I like I watched this really fresh in the middle of the day with a with a fresh cup of coffee this week, and I felt existential about life. But uh, <laughs> a hangover, I would. Can you imagine? Uh, yeah. no. I've, I've never I've never. Never had the experience of that, but I wouldn't. No, don't. No, no you curl up in a ball at the end of the day and be like, there's no point to like, I'm just not leaving this room. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Joe, it has been a pleasure. This has been really interesting. Uh, like a, a really good chat about what yeah. is, for me, an unbelievably important movie. I think it's like really important for all three of us. Good. I'm so relieved. Look, I did fear because I've, um, I've made the mistake, you know, lads down the pub sitting around. What's your favorite movie? <laughs> I mean, know your audience. Fast and Furious. <laughs> <laughs> I've made that mistake <laughs> to a stunned silence and I won't tell you the like inappropriate things that were then said for the next few minutes um, so <laughs> it has been a major relief to come on and be uh, talking to two people who like it and get it because I, I look there's, it, there's so many people who would who will listen to this or who will see this episode and be like you're joking I'm not <laughs> listening to that and I kind of I think that adds an intimacy on our part that some people look at this and like get nothing out of it and we get so much out of it. Hmm. Uh, that kind of adds to the sense of, look, there are the Anna Faris characters and then there's us. Yeah. We're the superior types. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the NUI Yale crowd is how we let's call ourselves. Yeah. Uh, for, for anybody who's made it this far in the podcast, we'd actually get in touch with any movies of this genre. Like, I mean, the, the Linklater series, as we mentioned earlier on, before Sunrise Onwards, is absolutely mm. something I'd have in their boyhood. Uh, but if you've got any suggestions, drop us a tweet. 
uh, get us uh, on any of our individual accounts. I think we've got a, a show account set up as well. Uh, just drop us a tweet, anything along this, these lines, and we'll, we'll try and go back and rewatch it over the next few months because there's always a level of depth to this and there, there is always something you'll find in yourself when you watch a movie like this, even if it is set in a really posh hotel in the middle of Japan with two people who are just desperately sad all of the time. Um, Joe <laughs> Malloy, it has been a pleasure. Sue, as ever, thank you so much. Thank this you. has been Let's Go Back to Lost in Translation. We're here every week where we go back and watch a film or a TV show that has a particular meaning for that week's special guest. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and we shall chat to you next week. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app.